Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, March 2nd, 2018. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Gabby. Or Gabby's not with us, sorry. <laughs> uh, Elliot, Doug, Tiffany, and Erica. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Hey. So we missed Gabby today. We'll, we'll hopefully see her next week. Uh, today we are talking about health tips from dummies, the dangers of mainstream dietary <laughs> advice. Uh, so as you all know that mainstream news and media are full of health advice, uh, it's all over the place. Um, most of it is bad, but that doesn't stop it from, from coming through the airwaves. And so mm-hmm. we just wanted to dig into that and see, uh, what exactly is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I guess to, uh, to start us off, I heard a funny ad the other day. I don't know if you guys have heard, uh, McDonald's has a new ad campaign running for the Big Mac. And they talk about, it's this woman, like, kind of forlornly mourning a granola bar. Like, oh, you're just, like, you're just nuts and oats and honey and, like, I really want a Big Mac, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, I mean, if you want to get anal about it, granola bars are not that good for you either. But I thought it was hilarious. McDonald's just being like, screw that, just eat this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, McDonald's said they're going to make their Happy Meals happier. Um, yeah, reducing the salt and the fat, and what are they? Oh, uh, sodium. Yeah, getting rid of yeah. the sugary drinks that they have in their yeah. restaurants. So it's like they're making four changes, and three of them are bullshit. But the other one is actually a good idea. So one yeah. of them was they're going to reduce the calories by to buy six hundred or two six to to six hundred calories. Yeah, I think they're they're reducing it to a 600 calories, which is like, I mean, you know, the whole focus on calories is ridiculous anyway. But you know, restricting kids' calories is even more retarded. But okay, and then they're doing only 10% of the calories can come from saturated fat. Well, we know that that's nonsense, and they're going to lower the sodium to 650 milligrams. And again, we know that there's nothing wrong with salt. And then they're going to decrease it so no more than 10% of calories come from added sugar. Oh, there's there's one thing that they did to actually make it somewhat <laughs> better. offering water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the kids are going to get excited about that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the whole thing, it's it's like they're so schizophrenic. I mean, after you saying about the this ad, Jonathan, about the, the Big Macs, it's kind of like – I guess they're trying to target different markets. Like they know that there's certain people out there who are just like, I don't care if it's bad for me. I'm just going to eat Big Macs. So they're like, you know, playing on this whole idea of granola bars and stuff. But then at the same time, they're like, well, parents obviously really care about what their kids are eating. So it's like, we're going to make these things healthier. It's uh, it's schizophrenic advertising. I don't think any self-respecting health conscious parent will take their kids to McDonald's. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> It's and just kind they, of like... What's their source of saturated fat anyway? Some of the fat well, that's yeah. in the fake meat. <laughs> yeah. The pink slime meat. Yeah, the silly putty in the french fries. <laughs> <laughs> what do they use to fry their their french fries? Vegetable like hydrogenated oil. oil. Vegetable yeah. oil, yeah. For that. Hydrogenated vegetable oil. Yeah. I'm not reducing saturated fat. Do they even use any saturated fat in the first place? I, I guess I guess they might Wonder. use um, they might use palm oil, but that's for, mm. ironically that's probably the the healthiest thing there. So I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, what's yeah. going on there? 
There's probably yeah. beef fat that they get, I imagine. I mean, they, they deal with so many yeah. you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of cows. I mean, they're not, they're a giant multinational corporation. They're not wasting, you know, cow yeah. product, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, they have 37,000 locations in over 100 countries. Oh, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. You know, reading this article, actually, it was really, I, I had to laugh because it's like, so McDonald's is apparently working with this institution called the Alliance for a Healthier Generation, which uh-huh. is a nonprofit co-funded by the American Heart Association and, get this, the Clinton Foundation. Mm. I thought that was pretty damn funny. Yeah. And so two pretty other, evil, evil other corporations. Other fast food chains such as Burger King, Subway, Wendy's, KFC, and Dairy Queen will follow a suit, offering yeah. healthier drinks and sides for kids. Yeah, well, okay, let's I mean, make KFC more, healthier. Yeah, <laughs> there's more sugar in a uh, in a McDonald's salad than there is in a, I mean, in, in the dressing of the salad. So it's like there's more sugar you know, in the dressing than what? Than a like a candy bar. I think it's like thirty grams Seriously. in like a in like a packet of like salad <laughs> dressing. So I'd have to look that up to confirm, but I know it's a lot. <laughs> but I mean, the whole idea is ridiculous on its face. It's marketing. It's stupid. Yeah. I mean, if they made their food like healthy, none of their customers would eat there. They'd all go into withdrawal and burn the restaurants yeah. down. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. It'd be funny if they actually like you know decided to. Uh, you know, partner with an actual company that maybe knows something about nutrition instead of these, like, instead of the Clinton Foundation and the American Heart Association and, like, start offering, like, keto shakes or something or, like, you could get a butter coffee with your uh, with your meal and, like, it was all keto stuff. It would actually be, like, like you say, nobody would eat there. But uh, yeah. it, it would just be really funny if they if they actually were like, you know what, we're, we're actually, we're going to go paleo now. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lettuce wraps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they, you know, you see, a, you see the other restaurants doing that, offering wraps, low carb mm-hmm. options, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to capitalize on it. Mm-hmm. They're going to also reformulate chocolate milk to reduce the amount of added sugar. Oh, wow. <laughs> they're going to use dark chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to use chocolate cows. <laughs> They'll probably switch to like aspartame or something like that. Sugar-free chocolate milk. And they're substituting apple juice for an organic variety with 45% less calories and half the total sugar. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. At the end of the day, it's still McDonald's. Yeah, exactly. I think McDonald's and fast food is kind of a no-brainer. I mean, if you spend a little bit of time looking into health and and healthy eating, you understand that, like, yeah. I mean, I guess if you needed to stay alive, like if you needed calories, you could eat fast food. <laughs> well, I don't know if you exactly. guys remember that science experiment that a teacher did where she left a Big Mac out in the classroom uh, yeah. for like three months and yeah. nothing happened. No, it was it. years. Yeah. Wasn't it years? Yeah. Like yeah. it was it was like ten years or something crazy like that. So yeah. they they aren't addressing like all the additives or preservatives in there. Well, no, I knew a exactly. Lady who the chemicals snuck off to McDonald's once. Because she was trying to eat healthy at home, so she had a, a Mac attack. <laughs> she snuck off to McDonald's and was eating her McDonald's in the car. And she threw little bits out of the window so the seagulls could come and eat it, and they wouldn't touch it. 
I have. I, think, I, uh, I, I will admit I've digressed into Culver's occasionally because they have a they have an Udi's gluten free bun and their uh, beef is not frozen. So it's like I think that's about as good as you're going to get. So you get like yeah. a, a tri- triple bacon burger with no cheese and a gluten free bun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's still like, still pretty uh, bad though. It's still yeah. pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of hydrogenated oils in there, and yeah, yeah. But um, <clears throat> I was gonna say like kind of onto the the media topic and like stuff that's coming from the media. This is this is like funnier, and I think a little funnier and more uh, disappointing at the same time than fast food restaurants doing their thing because they're they're blatant. You know, their corporations' food is a commodity not a health asset it's sold to make mm-hmm. money your customers are, are retained you know as you would with any other business mm-hmm. um now of course the media is similar but <clears throat> i think people trust the media a little bit more like if you see an article or something in the newspaper about a health topic that's more believable to the average joe than it is to hearing it in a mcdonald's ad um yeah so and some of it's pretty nefarious like the uh this recent one um from the independent experts declare turmeric is just a health fad. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, you know, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners like immediately roll your eyes, but um, yeah. if we can get past the eye rolling and look at like this, it's pretty nefarious. I think what they're doing and they, you know, the person who wrote this article may not think so probably doesn't think so. Um, but trying to think of how to phrase what I'm saying. So like in this article, they say turmeric is, is, has been lauded as the new kale. And it's this thing like there's, <laughs> <laughs> when I think about these fads, it's like, you know, and a fad doesn't mean that the food itself is a fad. It's just the fad mm-hmm. is a thing in and of itself. So like coconut oil was a fad. Now MCT oil is a fad, right? Kale, kale shakes, mm-hmm. turmeric, like, yeah. They become fads, I think, because a bunch of people catch on to it being a good thing. And then a lot yeah. of other people who like to do what looks like it's cool do that. And yeah. then they go, oh, I feel better. This really is cool. And then it catches on. But it's mixed yeah. in with this weird, like, uh, peer pressure, personal image, you know, cool factor kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that that's very true. I mean, because, you know, turmeric has all the right the right buttons, right? And, and in this article, they actually touch on this, that it's kind of like – it's got this mystique about it because it's from the East and like, um, like India, which, you know, has this kind of spiritual, uh, kind of image. So it kind of fits in with that. So, I mean, right off the bat, the article is kind of coming from that perspective where it's like, um, you know, this is all just hype. It's like people who are, you know, wearing their yoga pants and like sipping on turmeric lattes and it's not, you know, they think they're doing something healthy and it's not, they're not doing, uh, it's not going to do anything for them. But the problem is that at the same time, by dismissing the fad, they're also dismissing the actual herb itself, Yeah. which, you know, if you actually right. use the herb in a medicinal way and actually know what you're doing and don't just go to Starbucks and get a turmeric latte, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, like who actually expects that anything they're doing at Starbucks is going to like improve their health? I mean, honestly, but, um, yeah. but you shouldn't, you shouldn't dismiss the, the kind of the herb itself just because it is kind of getting trendy and, uh, other, um, you know, less reputable corporations are picking up on that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the mystique thing I think is interesting too, because you would like that person who gets the latte from Starbucks would be like, well, you know, Indian people live a really long time and they're all super, super healthy. And it's like, yeah, but your life is not that, you know, all the aspects <laughs> of living in a place like India 
uh, is not what you do with your life. Uh, despite, you know, just the, the sugar that's in your latte or the two tablespoons of honey in the kale shake that has a glycemic yeah. in this off the charts, you know, all that. Yeah. It's, it's that image. Like I'm being healthy because this looks a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, think it was in that same article where they were talking about turmeric and I like how they try to kind of couch it in terms like they're so worried about people's health. I think the person in the article said that he thought that turmeric was a fad and he was worried because it can lead to problems and disappointments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when people realize that turmeric is not going to solve all of their health problems. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like one, like they give a rat's ass about <laughs> people's problems and disappointments and what they feel about their health. And they don't take into account all of the problems and disappointments that people have when they go to mainstream medical doctors and do not get cured from whatever ails them. Yeah. Like they can't, totally. they can't reconcile the two. Like they don't notice that no one ever gets help from mainstream medicine or most people <laughs> yeah. don't. Mainstream medicine well, has some good points, but in comparison to the harm they do, I think they're very small. He goes even further than that. Actually, he's not just saying like disappointment. He says, I'll, I'll just read his quote here. He says, I have personally met people who have given up conventional treatment, including for serious diseases like cancer, in favor of supplements like these. Some of them died. <laughs> in and of itself, turmeric is not a problem, but when combined with a huge amount of hype, it can be deadly. Oh. Dead, turmeric is deadly, guys. It's not just that it isn't effective. It's deadly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. so ridiculous that they can claim that it's deadly and people have been using turmeric in their food for thousands of years how is it deadly yeah. i think well, the, prob- the problem is what they're equating it with is basically someone going to a mainstream doctor uh, say they've been given a diagnosis of cancer and then they decide on passing up basically saying no to the chemotherapy and trying out the alternative option of, say, turmeric Tur- or something. Turmeric lattes. Then, <laughs> it, well, yeah. yeah, you know, like people people do, they dismiss doing conventional treatment and they go mm. off and do alternative treatment. So I think what they're alluding to is is that it may be that someone dismisses taking proper treatment and then tries an alternative route and fails. But what they're doing is they're, they're mixing up two entirely different concepts. Yeah. They're, they're mixing up the, the, the thing where the, where the person decides not to go with medical treatment and then they're kind of like meshing that in with the, the medical benefits of turmeric and they're two different things. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, does that make sense? That, yeah, you, know, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> you can't try to to say that turmeric has no benefits because someone may choose to go against medical treatment. That you know, it's it's deceptive yeah. the way that it's yeah. written. Mm-hmm. I yeah, agree. it's like saying that water is deadly because it doesn't cure cancer. <laughs> <laughs> but McDonald's I mean, is going to sell right? it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it it I I hear exactly what you're saying, Elliot. Like, and it, I do think that it is kind of confounding those two things. Like somebody giving up, like you know, deciding to go with alternative treatments for any kind of disease state is a completely different thing than something becoming trendy because it's got a lot of hype behind it. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that, that by conflating the two, like nobody, you know, I made the joke about people foregoing their cancer treatment and going for turmeric lattes because it is a joke. Nobody's going to do that. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go under the chemotherapy because uh, Starbucks has just started selling turmeric lattes. So that, that's my, my chosen method. It's like, it's, it's completely conflating those two things because if somebody actually did an alternative treatment of which, you know, turmeric was a part um, and they were actually with a practitioner who knew what they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. They could, you know, potentially um, have some headway with that. But, um, you know, it's just that they're completely conflating the two issues, like you said, Elliot. And if yeah. they did have headway, it wouldn't be acknowledged anyway, as we've shown no. in our shows. Yeah, <laughs> and there was no, another man. Eye- oh, sorry, go on. <laughs> Yeah, Elliot, go ahead, please. I was just going to say the irony is is that turmeric has actually been used um, in cancer treatment, and there's been some fascinating results. So what they've said is just downright incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there I'm, was I'm like another. Uh, no, Jonathan, nebul- go ahead. Oh, I just going to say I've heard of nebulizing uh, curcumin for lung cancer. That that's one thing that people mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there was another article actually like about a year ago um, and it was by Forbes and they were basically saying, yeah, turmeric, it's all hype. There's nothing behind it. It's just a bunch of BS. And uh, Sayer G from Green Med Info actually uh, did a response to that. We've got it up on SOT. Um, It says Forbes leads media attack against turmeric health benefits. And it's like the whole point of the article, what what, uh, Sayer G is kind of pointing out is that Forbes is basically – they, the, the person that got to write the article, first of all, has all kinds of like uh, conflicts of interest. But um, they're basically saying that um, the which is basically they're taking the, the whole materialist kind of perspective on these things, the, the pharmaceutical um, perspective, which is basically like find out the one ingredient in there, the one compound that is um, active and that is actually having an effect, which already is a fallacy. Right. And they're like, then we'll test that one out in like placebo-controlled, random-controlled studies. And uh, we'll see how it kind of stacks up. Well, of course, nobody's going to do that because you can't patent that compound. So, you know, then they'll, they'll say that there's not enough evidence to show that it actually does anything. But also, the idea that there's only one compound in there that, that's actually effective is just nonsense. Like, you know, herbs tend to have a synergistic type of effect. And we've talked about this on the show before, that you can't just like, you know, whittle it down to that one thing and say that that's the only thing that's doing anything. Therefore, like, you know, it's a very pharmaceutical uh, perspective on these things. So, yeah, and it's something they can't patent, as you said, so they have no control over it. Right. This way they control the narrative about it. And who's going to do an expensive random controlled study? on placebo control study on, on a, something that they can't patent. I mean, those, those studies are very expensive. So obviously you don't see these kinds of studies being done on, uh, on these compounds. And yeah, like you said, Erica, it's just, it, it, therefore they can just dismiss it and be like, well, there's no evidence. Yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> I think that like, again, I don't know quite how to say this, accurately but like the the problem that a lot of like the snopes like debunker Mm. types have is very similar to the problem that the people that they're addressing have 
like they both have similar problems. Like the people that tend to glom onto and say, oh, turmeric alone is going to cure, cure my cancer. They, they have a similar kind of narrow-sightedness or tunnel vision that the debunkers have. So mm-hmm. they're both coming at it without the ability to think in broad terms. But I think it's kind of insulting for people to say this, like in this, in this article about turmeric as well, because people that have cancer, uh, and a lot of people know people that do, or a lot of people have it themselves, um, have, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very, uh, fearful. You know, mm-hmm. you're at fear for your life. You don't, it's very uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen. You feel, uh, disempowered, uh, because doctors have the knowledge to help you and you have no knowledge. So you're kind of, you know, you're probably going to die and all these things start to come up. And that person understands, I think, full well that one thing is not going to cure their disease, but they're exactly. also, you know, they're, they're also sub, subject to that hope. So it's like, it's a very fine balance and insulting them for thinking that, that, you know, that they think one thing is going to help is, is insulting. Like I said, you know, it's, uh, it's disrespectful. It's not considering their circumstance. I actually do wonder how many people out there, you know, it's, it's kind of like it's a straw man. Like, I don't know anybody who's kind of like foregone conventional medical treatment and, and picked up on one thing that's a trend and said that this is going to help me. And this, th- yeah. that's the only thing that I'm going to do. It's like, it, I don't think that that exists. I don't think those people exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. maybe they do, but I mean, maybe it's like a Darwinian thing and, they, they, you know, they'll be weeded out of the the uh, the population. Yeah, well, I've heard stories, you know, about people, last minute treatments, various things, whether it's like Rick Simpson oil, like we've talked about before, or mm-hmm. high, dose, high dose vitamin C, stuff like that, where it's worked a lot of times and where it hasn't worked. And yeah. if if you shoot you shoot yourself in the foot by looking at that with an, a very narrow view, because based on either case you could say it works or it doesn't work. So you have mm-hmm. to look at all the cases, you know. And mostly in cases where uh, I guess we call traditional treatments like that work, um, <clears throat> is where you catch it in time. I mean, there is a point at which diseases like cancer have taken over, and they're too powerful, and you're just going to die from it. Mm-hmm. You know. I think that that happens quite a bit. Uh, and so, but the, you know, the key then is to educate people who either have it in an early stage or are at risk for it or everybody, um, you know, that, that hasn't died from it yet. Uh, mm. you know, it's really important. And this is a huge point of like kind of passion for me because I see so many people, like I live in kind of a rural area and I don't know if it's similar in other parts of the world, but like everybody's got cancer, like, mm. you know, like 90% of the people that I know in the last few years that have died have, have died from cancer. Uh, I know wow. a lot of people that, that have it, a lot of people that were just diagnosed. Um, I would even venture to say it's going to be more than diabetes. Like it's going to be the leading cause of death very soon. Mm. If it's not already, uh, but I don't I know what the actual statistics are. Leading cause, so they say. Yeah, I think heart disease is number one, right? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And then diabetes, I think, is, is another one because that's prevalent. What did they say, one in three? Like within mm-hmm. the next couple of years, you're going to have diabetes. Jesus. So it's a huge issue. And that's, <clears throat> and it's something that is becoming more and more common and that a lot of people are really scared of, but there are options, you know, and there are mm-hmm. like really, really like super good preventative, preventative options that you can actually have faith in. But there's mm-hmm. also options even for stage one, two, three, and four. Um, yeah. So anyway, it's, uh, I don't mean to rant, but it, hearing lies about it in the media is really infuriating. 
because yeah. you're, pardon my French, but you're fucking with people's hope for their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a big deal, you know. And I think that, you know, they're coming from a very disingenuous place too. You know, it's kind of like, uh, let's, you know, let's debunk a trend. What's, what's the latest trend? Oh, turmeric. Okay. Let's find some experts who have some things to, to say slamming turmeric. And now we've got the, the latest article and it's going to go viral. It's kind of, it's yeah. like, it's very, it's very like trendy to debunk the thing that everybody likes, right? Exactly. Because you, yeah. it, it, it's always divisive, right? Like, so, I mean, some people are jumping on it, and some people are like, you know, calling those people idiots. So it's, let's 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 target these people who think that other people are idiots, and uh, and then you know we'll get more clicks or whatever. So it just it's it's kind of, it's like you said, like you're you're basically messing with people's hope, and like you are slamming something that could potentially be helpful for people too. And it's not even, it's, you know, and, and even presenting it in such a black and white way, like either you're going with turmeric or you're going with the conventional treatment. Well, that's not the case, yeah. right? There's no reason that somebody who's not going through conventional treatment couldn't also be trying other things, you know, yeah. as, as a way yeah. of kind of synergistically working with these, with, with the, with the disease. Yeah. Right. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's really aggravating. Like the, me- <laughs> the media drives me nuts. I feel I like we, we addressed a little bit of that in that uh, Fungus Among Us show mm. about mycelium mm. and mushrooms and how Paul Stamets did that with the turkey tails, like when mm-hmm. his mom was going through chemotherapy and he mm-hmm. supplemented the turkey tails and she had a remission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's too nuanced for mainstream. Yeah. Nuanced. No kidding. <laughs> they have to present everything as black and white, make it very simple. So that the average person can digest it, which yeah. they're, they're really doing people a disservice. And it's a lot of it is just for clicks, like you said, mm-hmm. Doug. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Here's another one. Uh, one of the articles we were looking at. Um, major study reveals processed foods are driving up rates of cancer. Mm-hmm. Foreheads, yeah, up, I guess, but you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> shocker. They just figured that out. Yeah. <laughs> just looking. Just looking at the uh, like the the cognitive dissonance in this article is is hilarious, and, and I appreciate what the person is doing. This is a Daily Mail, Ben Spencer from the Daily Mail. So Ben, no ill will here. It's a good article, <laughs> um, but <clears throat> uh, there's a there's talk about you know it's kind of vague. So experts found just last night that that processed foods raise the risk of cancer, uh, sugary cereals, fizzy drinks. Uh, biscuits, you know, uh, chemical preservatives. So it's it's very vague. Um, this is a quote-unquote ultra-processed food involve, involving an industrial procedure now makes up half of our diet. Yes, that's true. Um, packed with mm-hmm. chemical additives, processed foods, packaged meat, pies, etc. So I don't mean to go on and on, but my point being, and, and then at a, uh, at a certain point here, he says, Campaigners said that families should heed the warning and read food labels more carefully to check for levels of fat, salt, and sugar. <laughs> like, dude, where did all the chemicals go from your warning? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, that's, that's just the thing. Like, you know, to start off saying, yeah, processed food is, is, you know, leading to cancer. And then it's like the solution to that is to read labels more carefully. Yeah. Because, yeah, everybody knows what, you know, uh, Sodium erythrobate, or you know, I don't even know the names. See, like, <laughs> it's uh, you got to really get into a whole field of study to know what those things are. I figure if you look yeah. at a label and you don't recognize anything, then don't get it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I think that's, or, a, that's generally good advice. 
I mean, at the yeah. very least, look it up, you know. I mean, like, I had my own kind of uh, moment of enlightenment about nitrates and understanding mm-hmm. that they're not as bad for you as it seems, you know. But yeah. if you were to kind of go off the common wisdom, you're like, oh, nitrates are on the label. It's bad. But, yeah. you know, if you see something you don't know about, at least look it up and, and do some reading on it. Well, it's interesting that you bring up nitrates, actually, Jonathan, because uh, there was recently a, a, a guardian, an article in The Guardian, and I say recently, I think it was only out like two days ago or something like that, that was, being, that was basically saying, why, you know, we, we know that bacon is really bad, so why hasn't anybody done anything about it? And it was basically going <laughs> off the whole... Yeah, no, I, well, that, the thing was, like, he was, he was basically saying that, you know, everybody loves bacon and it has a tradition and everybody remembers the smell of bacon kind of cooking in their home when they were young and it's very comforting, but, but we know it's going to kill you. And it was basically just going on this whole thing. It was a very long article, actually, and it went off about nitrates and basically nitrates are the, the mother of all evil and, you know, that it's, we know for a fact that it causes cancer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, anyway, yeah, I just thought it was interesting about nitrates because because I had just finished actually reading that article a couple hours ago and was kind of fuming about it. Yeah, there's uh, – no, I'm going to – so I have to disclaimer that this may not be 100% accurate, but I remember reading that there are more nitrates in your saliva, in your mouth right now than a pound mm-hmm. of bacon. Yeah. <laughs> I think so we did a like, whole show on nitrates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did. Yeah, and it's in celery; it's all over the place, so it's not bad. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but that's one of the things, you know. So, I think one of the main keys in this whole conundrum is just self-education. But um, I think most people say, like, they're drawn to that. Like, say, yes, I would like to learn more about something, but I don't have time, or I don't have the energy, mm-hmm. or I don't have the mental power because I'm thinking about work or my kids, or you know, mm-hmm. uh, th- they would like to learn more about that, but they just uh, don't feel like they can. Yeah, and the problem is that the vacuum that that fills that void of knowledge is like mainstream media headlines in particular, mm-hmm. and you know Facebook posts, all this kind of stuff. Where basically it's like people people are getting their health information from like headlines from the mainstream media, mm-hmm. and you know obviously, I mean even if you read the mainstream media article, you probably aren't getting a whole lot of nuance, but you certainly aren't getting that from just reading a headline. So it's kind of like, you know, where people are actually getting their, their health information is, is like half the problem. You know, it's like, it's like coming from mainstream sources for sure. And those mainstream sources are not doing their due diligence. And, you know, I blame health journalists a lot for not being properly educated in this kind of stuff and be able to kind of like look critically at the studies that are coming across their desks. But um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like there's this glut and it gets filled by this, you know, you know, it's like the processed food of journalism, basically. <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. Yep. And people totally. are not reading the ingredients. Well, and there's this conflation of what comes from the media as like the way things are. It's like a subtle newspeak kind of thing. Like you notice when you're talking to people about stuff that's come up in the news, you say, oh, did you hear that coconut oil is bad for you now? Or, oh, yeah. did you hear that gender is fluid now? You know, <laughs> you like, <clears throat> you, uh, you know, you apply subtly um, a, a, a meaning of truth to that statement, even though you may not necessarily think so. The language implies it unless you begin to think it after some right. time. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's another layer to this, too. Like, maybe the, the headlines would be one layer and the 
actual news uh, article will be one layer for the people who actually choose to read it. And then there's a so-called uh, more savvy consumer who is interested in health and wants to know a little bit more. And they are directed to sites like the American Diabetes Association or the American mm. Heart Association, which I don't know if they're worse than the fluffy news stories that that they put out because they actually link to or link to scientific studies, which are faulty and biased and mm-hmm. are not good studies at all. But they give the appearance of giving the more savvy consumer more information, more science-based information, and they're just exactly. as bad. Yeah. 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 I think they're probably worse because um, they they carry with them a sense of authority, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and they say things with um, with conviction, as as if it is as if it is factual. Whereas at least you can tell when reading a headline or reading a dodgy news article that it's kind of they're not necessarily claiming to have the truth, whereas these bodies do claim to have the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they yeah. consistently state, like on the American Heart Association website, they talk about, oh, well, we've been doing this research for 70 years. We have a long track, track yeah. record of doing research on heart disease. So we know what we're talking about is basically what they're saying. Trust us. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, like, they're, they have a very strong position on this. And they're also the ones who are funding half these studies. Yeah. So it's kind of like they they're just they're just paying to kind of bolster their own position. And then that ends up getting put out there, you know, the journalists get like a news release about a new study and they report on it. There's like no critical thinking at any stage, right? It's just kind of like we'll pay for a study that says this, we get that study, we put it out, the media regurgitates it. It's as simple as that. And there's there, there's no, you know, you really have to go to these alternative sources to be able to find people who are actually able and willing to pick it apart and really see what's going on there. And then there's, if there's any sort of retraction, it's not like it's ever made frontline news either. No. No, that's true. And then there's the, uh, the, the old, uh, meat argument, you know, the vegetarian argument, that old chestnut. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I was just looking at another one of our articles. Uh, yes, you can die from eating red meat. Here are four tips to reduce your intake. And this is this is fun and painful to read. Just I love the uh, uh, take your pick of reasons why the human species needs to eat less meat from the detrimental impact global meat consumption has on the climate uh, to the ethics of mass farming of sentient animals. Uh, or here's one that might sink in for the more selfish carnivores among us, not dying of a chronic illness. Oh, there's so much wrong with that. And I think like, that yeah. was more of an alternative media. It was yeah. alternate. Yeah. That was alternate. Yeah, alternate. Yeah. 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 Who clearly have uh, drunk the Kool-Aid on the whole vegan thing. <laughs> I, yeah. think, I think I, I think it's, it's definitely nuanced, this whole thing is. And I've swung back and forth on it several times over the past couple of years trying to get my head around where I actually stand on the issue. And I've come to sort of a midway point now based on all of this other information that I've tried to collate. And hey, I Elliot, think I'm, I'm are... going to cut you off. I'm sorry, dude. Uh, you, you got like a Star Wars voice modulator thing going on. Because <laughs> I, I want to hear, hear what you're saying, though. Will you try reconnecting? 
<laughs> I think he's sorry to throw a wrench in the works there, guys, but I didn't, <laughs> he has an important point, and that was all going to yeah. sound garbled. Yeah. Hello. So yeah, yeah, oh, there he sound is. better. Much, much better. Thank you. Right. Sorry. Um, yeah. What I was going to say was I've I've sort of taken mixed positions on the whole meat issue before. You know, I I previously was vegetarian and then I sort of went carnivore and I've sort of flitted back and forth. Um, and I, based on some more information, I think I have a better understanding of of where both sides are coming from. Now, I think the statement that red meat causes cancer is is preposterous. Um, mm. But there is research to back that up. And it's not always necessarily bad research. And, you know, there are there do seem to be some studies that are well designed that have shown correlations with certain diseases. Now, I think the fundamental problem is not with the meat itself. I mm. I believe I believe one of the issues here is is the glyphosate in the meat and mm. i think the glyphosate I, i've been geeking out with this the past couple of weeks but i mean next week we're going to get a really special guest on the show so we'll talk all about that next week mm. but basically i've come to the conclusion that a lot of the bad things that are associated with meat can easily be attributed to the glyphosate to the but grain feeding. glyphosate is good for you too yeah it doesn't cause problems <laughs> it's a superfood <laughs> <laughs> it's actually an antibiotic, but we'll save that for another show. <laughs> that's, I think, Elliot, I, I think that's a great point because it is nuanced, right? I mean, it's it's per person as well, and as well as probably being due to those uh, you know, pesticides like you're talking about. Um, but they, there's a guy, now I can't remember his name, but it, who is a pure carnivore. He eats all red meat, perfectly healthy. He's a monster mm-hmm. with, like, exercise, and I think he's in his 60s. Um, but that's that guy, you know, there are other people who did that diet would get hemochromatosis from it. Maybe, you know, it's hard to say. So it's like, so it's totally individual. There are so many vegans who, who, who get off a standard diet and claim to feel really good. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the reasons for that is not necessarily because a vegan diet is better than a meat diet. Um, Mm. I think it's probably because of all the shit that accumulates in the, in the meat. Because if you think an animal goes through, you know, you know, like a year or two years, depending on the different types of animals, and they are fed the worst quality, most highly sprayed, toxic grains. Yeah. And Mm. this uh, it's actually been shown that the glyphosate and all of the other stuff, but I'm I'm focusing specifically on the glyphosate because this seems the most sinister is that it what it can actually what it's hypothesized to do is actually replace the amino acid glycine in protein synthesis. So they're finding that that glyphosate is actually incorporated into the protein, not only Mm. in the fat, but it's actually in the protein of the animals. So if you think about it, the the typical vegan diet, okay, say they eat some grains, there's going to be a certain amount that's sprayed on those grains, yeah? But they're not going to get that much. Whereas you eat you eat an animal from the supermarket who's been fed all of this crap for two two whole years, that's like a concentrated source of pure toxicity, you know. Well, and I think that that is likely. I think I mean it would be silly to assume that that didn't affect the results of a study. So right. I mean to say that I mean there's no there's no control trials on you know grass fed pasture fed right. meat, and I I. Yeah. I 
personally believe, you know, I can't say with any certainty, but I believe that if you had high-quality meat produce in a study, you would probably mm-hmm. find that it was just as good, if not better, than a, a plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah. absolutely true. And I, I think that one of the problems with all the arguments against meat eating is that they don't make that distinction. Like even in that alternate article, they're talking about, you know, the, the environmental impact of meat eating. But they're, they're conflating meat eating with factory farming. Mm-hmm. And it's like the two aren't the same thing. Like, yes, most meat is coming from those factory farm situations where, of course, they're eating lots of glyphosate and like it has a huge environmental impact. But that that is you can't conflate that with meat eating in general because if somebody yeah. is getting high quality meat they're getting it from like a farm where the the uh animals have been pasture raised and they're not eating a bunch of crap and you know their manure is kind of being used to fertilize the the plants and it's there there's a whole kind of symbiotic relationship there like that that is not bad for the environment that is very good for the environment so it's it's they they really tend to to conflate these things and really um, give a, a skewed picture of what actually is going on. Totally, I mean it's like uh, it's almost like meat is turning into uh, the new tobacco. We call that our anti fad. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have to. It's like because you have to argue with and I've stopped having these discussions, but arguing with that there are healthy tobacco alternatives to Philip Morris. Uh, it's really hard to get into that conversation, but it's going to be the same thing. I think, um, you know, trying to argue that there is healthy red meat. Well, no, they said red meat is bad, you know, or it's like the difference between a salad from McDonald's or one that I make at home. I guarantee Mm -hmm. the one I make at home is better. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's an inability to, uh, to talk about nuance Mm -hmm. like at all, but it's, it's really a bummer. It makes conversations really hard. (laughs) <laughs> well, speaking of smoking, there was yeah. uh, another um, article that we looked at for this that was another piece of uh, just a gem from the mainstream media. Um, it was in the Huffington Post, and it was called Sitting is the New Smoking. And it was oh, talking yeah. all about how sitting is the absolute worst thing for you. You know, the, the, it's a health crisis, essentially. Yeah sitting down but that's um, oh sorry go ahead you have to read that quote you have to read that quote doug about what dr james levine uh said about it he was the inventor of the treadmill desk (laughs) (laughs) what was it oh okay well i have it here it says sitting is more dangerous than smoking kills more people than hiv and is more treacherous than parachuting we're sitting <laughs> I don't know how many of our listeners are regular parachuters, but um, yeah. <laughs> seems like it's a bit reaching. I don't know. That's a bit of, that's a, bit of a reach. Yeah, based on what studies, I have to ask. Yeah. Well, I think this is kind of like Elliot's point about red meat. Because uh, I'll tell you, I sat every day, all day for years, for like 12 years, and screwed up my back from doing it. And uh, mm-hmm. when I started using a standing desk with a stool for support, everything got much better. Um, so oh, but that's I think bad that now, too. We'll go into Yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there is something to that. I don't think that it's as dangerous as parachuting. But uh, I, think, <laughs> I, think the, the, I think the salient point is that the sedentary lifestyle is bad for you. Yeah. But this yeah. is Actually, another example of exact. Of sitting down. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, they don't make that distinction. Right. If you yeah. don't do any exercises, whether it's, you know, purposely going to the gym to exercise or doing things around the house or around the yard that exercises your back and strengthens your back, then yes, you might have back problems after a while, <laughs> but it has nothing to do with sitting <laughs> at a desk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, there was recently a study that came out um, that found that standing desks may lead to back pain and brain drain. <laughs> so basically, oh. it's a new study in the journal uh, Ergonomics. Um, and they said that over time, discomfort increased in all body areas when they were using standing desks. Uh, sustained attention reaction time deteriorated. Um, although, oddly enough, creative problem solving improved. So, yeah, it's basically just like another one of those things, right? Where it's kind of like sitting is bad for you there. Everybody, you know, all these biohackers run out and get themselves a standing desk or a walking desk or something yeah. like that. Put themselves on yeah. a hamster wheel. And, um, but then another study comes out and it says, no, wait a second. Standing desks are really bad. So it's, it's kind of like, well, you know, what, what are we going to do now? Are we going to like do all our work from bed? Like yeah. it, it just, you know, yeah. It just yeah. it it's it's kind of like you know, can we, I don't know. There's there's no there, there, anti. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I'm speechless. Yeah, yeah. Well, coupled with like the products that you can get, like there's, I have to say, I actually thought about getting this. Uh, it's like a articulated arm that you can mount that will hold like a tablet or a phone up above your bed, so you can lay down and look at it. <laughs> 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 so. Yeah, that's in my future. Well, Doug was mentioning before the show about, you know, maybe eventually we'll see everyone rolling around in laying beds at the grocery store. <laughs> I mean, the logistics on that is... Crazy. Like those little motor scooters that 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 uh, the aged and the morbidly obese tend to go around on. They'll, they'll be in yeah. beds next, for sure. What was it? There, there was a Pixar movie about a little robot. And uh, all of humanity yeah. was like on a spaceship, and they were all fat and round, and they couldn't. Wally, walk. I think it was called. Well, yeah, oh Wally. yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. a good one. But that's you know, it's sad that that's not that much of a stretch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, humans, you know, there there humans will always want convenience, and as long as there's mm -hmm. money around it, and smart people can get paid to make everything more convenient, it's just going to keep going that way. Yeah. 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 It's hard to know what exactly to do. I mean, I think you know there, there's got to be you got to have some some again nuance in what uh, what how you you know try to to implement some of these solutions. So yeah, you know, sitting down for you too long obviously is bad. Um, standing maybe isn't the right answer, or maybe it is. You know, it probably what if depends it hurts a lot your on your feet when you're standing. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's kind of like I think that everybody, every individual kind of has to be aware of the problem and try and work something out that, that actually works for them. So maybe spending part of the day standing, part of the day sitting, you know, maybe the treadmill desk thing wasn't the best idea. So, you know, instead maybe go for a walk every once in a while. Yeah, we yeah a I want to ask you that. About that, about walking is the new superfood. Mm -hmm. So if you do sit at a desk <laughs> for eight hours a day, every uh, 50 minutes, get up and walk around for 10 minutes. I mean, that's not... That's not I think hard. that we have to say, we have to debunk that whenever you see a headline that something is the new something, that <laughs> yeah. it's just nonsense. Like, just, just right. throw it out. Because yeah. honestly, like, 
you know, such and such is the new such and such. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I could probably... I could probably speculate that walking is is one of the oldest superfoods. Since we evolved with legs and and feet. But I just want to echo that point that I was actually looking at some research the other day and it was talking about walking. It was talking about the insulin sensitivity of skeletal muscle and how just getting up, um, well, actually, particularly after a meal. um, So just going for like a five or 10 minute walk after a meal is like really good for your blood sugar and similarly uh i think it was uh in similar lines to what erica was saying about every 15 minutes or every half an hour if you get up and just walk around for two minutes then i think it decreased your fasting blood glucose and insulin levels by like half or something like that um Mm. so it rapidly increased insulin sensitivity so the idea is is that just by standing up and walking around for two minutes, your muscles are basically sending the signal, hey, guys, we need more energy, so they're going to take up more glucose. Um, whereas if you just sit down for, like, six hours straight, I mean, I know that when I'm sitting down for, like, six hours, my back starts to really hurt. But, um, mm. but yeah, I guess it's not very good for your body uh, <laughs> in general. <laughs> no need to go into everything else that surrounds that. But, yeah, generally just walking, that's pretty good. <laughs> So we've all been sitting, I'm assuming, for the last 50 minutes. Do we Mm. all need to get up and walk around? I'm actually standing. I'm actually on the treadmill. (laughs) I'm doing this from bed. I'm doing like 250-pound cleans. (laughs) I'm in an anti-gravity spaceship. (laughs) Oh, wow. Tiffany's going to outlive us all. <laughs> Not really, because yeah. I eat coconut oil. Oh. oh. Saturated fat. Yeah. We should only be eating 13 grams of saturated fat a day. Otherwise, we're going to fall over and die from a heart attack. What if we rub yeah. it on our body? Does that count? <laughs> it's not good for your skin either. It's just a fad. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a fad. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think the really ironic thing about about the whole coconut fiasco, and I don't know if people know what happened, but a little while ago, basically, it was the American Heart Association. It was them, right? Yeah, the American Heart Association came out and said uh, that, you know, coconut oil, this coconut oil fat has to stop because coconut oil is really bad for you because it contains saturated fat. And essentially, they were just doubling down on the stupid advice that they've been giving for the last, you know, half century that saturated fat is absolutely evil. And there's no, again, no nuance there, nothing. They're just like, you know, saturated fat is bad. Coconut oil has saturated fat. Therefore, coconut oil is very bad for you. And, you know, not basing that on any kind of study or anything like that. They're just basically saying, nope, sorry, coconut oil is out. Mm-hmm. So it's really aggravating. Ironically, like, complete, they, um, the American Heart Association, <sighs> They talk about saturated fats in some of their articles. Um, They're talking about reducing saturated fat intake. But at the same time, um, they're saying that American diets are filled with staples of pizza, burgers and sandwiches. Mm. And so it's not about suggesting they switch to a deprivation diet, but looking at healthier alternatives. So they're, they're basically saying that pizza, burgers and sandwiches are the main sources of saturated fat. 
And mm. I've got a real big issue with that because yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not I'm not aware of any kind of pizza or um, publicly available burger or sandwich which contains a significant amount of saturated fat when compared with the amount of refined carbohydrate or the added yeah. sugar or um, or the polyunsaturated fat. Actually, it's usually much more of the latter than the saturated fats. So I find it can. Uh, I guess it's kind of disingenuous that what they, what they're doing is they're they they are they're basically stating that these are these are high saturated fat foods and generally that they're, they're not. Um, yeah. And yeah. and I agree that the Americans should should limit the amount of pizza, burgers, and sandwiches that they eat, but for very different reasons. Um, yeah. And it's not anything to do with the saturated fat. And a lot of the problems with the saturated fat sort of myth the idea about saturated fat being bad you know we've covered this plenty of times before but a lot of the time what it is it's based on obesogenic diets formulated and fed to mice and the obesogenic diets yeah they contain lots of fat but they also contain lots of sugar and refined carbs at the same time Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's really really difficult to to make any sort of um um statements about what that actually means so it's 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 ambiguous yeah well the the statements are a problem you know i mean if you're from um uh, like northern sweden uh you probably shouldn't be eating any sugar at all uh if you're from mm. like fiji you can probably handle eating pork and like mangoes you know genetically mm. um there's so many you know or like pizza yeah it's very bad but you go back to like heirloom weed in italy you know 1200 years ago and they're making you know meals out of this food it's not killing people because it's not transformed the way that that modern weed has been transformed and added all the pesticides and now the gluten is in much higher content than it used to be and you know there's so many subtle factors to all of this and it's the statements it's the 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 boy who cried wolf mentality of the media that's so frustrating it's like you know it, it may be a function of us just having too many people because you can't have a, a, a like a, a pertinent discussion about this kind of stuff and actually suss out the details with 300 million people in the room mm. you know which is essentially what the internet is was well, more, way more than that but I wonder if that's a function of that because we here can have a fine discussion about it. And I do with other friends. And even in cases where I'm up against somebody who thinks that everything diet related is stupid, you know, even in those cases, we can have a reasonable discussion one-on-one or in a group. But as soon as you start getting like these big groups and everything is distilled down to binary statements, uh, yeah, it's just not going to work. So it really is up to every single person to, to find out what works for them. And, uh, you know, there's a part where you got to get a little bit cold about it too. If you eat shit for the rest of your life and you die from it, I'm really sorry that happened. It's not my problem. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I, would, I would hope that people would listen to advice and see how they feel and think about how they can make themselves feel better, but it's up to each person. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's the part of the problem is that um, these organizations are making these broad statements about diet for everyone. And there is no, uh, individuality within that you know it's like the food pyramid everybody has to eat according to the food pyramid and it's like well i mean there's probably nobody who actually would thrive on the food pyramid but you know it, it's kind of like 
taking out the idea that that every individual needs to kind of figure figure things out for themselves. You know, it's like we had the interview with Michaela Peterson not too long ago, and you see how much effort she's actually put into figuring out what actually works for her and what doesn't. And recognizing that, you know, some of that is probably temporary, but for now I really have to figure this out and, and you know, eliminate certain things from the diet, even if it's difficult. And, you know, you've got, you know, uh, organizations like the American Heart Association, which, I mean, I should definitely point out as well that the president of the American Heart Association just had a heart attack. So why anybody would even consider following that advice is kind of lost on me. But, um, you know, they're putting, they, they put out these re- dietary recommendations that are across the board the same for everyone. Mm-hmm. So it's like it, it really it takes out all personal responsibility out of the equation and just kind of says everybody has to do this. Well, totally. they post these articles about how saturated fat and cholesterol are bad for you. And the next article down, they're talking about how the rates of heart disease is growing and how obesity is yeah. growing. And they obviously don't take into account that nobody, or if they are, people are following their recommendations and it's not working. So which mm-hmm. one is it? Like, mm-hmm. are you just not getting the message out clearly enough? I think that's the tact that they're taking. But if they assume that people are following their recommendations, why aren't they disturbed that these rates of obesity and heart disease and diabetes are going up? Yeah, and people can't help but follow their advice because all the foods that they're eating uh, are following that advice. So all these processed foods that are lowering the fat, lowering the amount of saturated fat, all that kind of stuff, you know, people are following the advice, not necessarily because they're putting effort into it, but just because the food that is available is following that advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's it's all frustrating, but I think a a part of it uh, that's particularly frustrating is that, like, I... So I think there's a difference between appeal to authority and appeal to expertise. Appeal to mm-hmm. authority really bothers me. I really like appealing to expertise because I know that that person has spent a lot of time in a certain field and I'm sure they know way more than I do about it. So if, if that's the case, I really like doing that. And <clears throat> because it gives you a certain sense of confidence, right? And you're now you're a team and now you have an expert who can help and fill in the blanks where you don't know how to do stuff. Um, but it, it where doctors should be that it's starting to be less and less like that in, in my mind anyway. And I think for a lot of people, you know, even to the point where saying I'm not a doctor now, doesn't have the same, you know, when you're telling somebody like, Hey, probably I'm not a doctor, but you probably shouldn't eat so much bread. Um, <laughs> but the, the, I'm not a doctor thing is like, it's almost more beneficial <laughs> in my mind. Now <laughs> if somebody says that, um, yeah. You know, but it's it's frustrating because, again, the boy who cried wolf mentality is decreasing the legitimacy of, of, of expertise because the experts are now being brought up with with the wrong knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Well, it's like the difference between experts and experts in quotation marks. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So, in, you know, on, that, on the personal level, when you're talking to people, it, it feels like uh, – you know, what we were talking about in personal choice and things like that. There's, there's a moment where like before this moment, I feel, I feel sort of bad for somebody who may not have the knowledge. So like, say that they have really bad pain in their uh, soft tissue, kind of like fasciitis or something. And, but they, you know, they drink beer on a regular basis. They eat a lot of pizza or chips or stuff like that. And they just don't know that that connection is there. And I'm like, that sucks. Let's help you learn what this connection is. So you explain it. And then you say, look, if you stop doing these things, I know it kind of sucks, but you won't have this pain anymore. 
and they go, I can't, I can't do that. You know, yeah. and you're like, okay, well, I guess you love your pain then. There's, let's talk about something else. You know, <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. you just hit a wall where it's like, I can't, you know, if you don't want to do something to fix the situation that you're complaining about, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. And that's, that's another frustrating aspect of this whole thing. And I think the consumption of the damaging foods, which as we know, also damages your brain and your ability to think is getting people into that state where it's too hard to get out of. Uh, willpower wise, you know, physical impulse wise, they're addicted to the chemicals that are in the food, addicted to the wheat itself. Um, you know, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. Uh, it is a it is a barrier for a lot of I mean there's so many barriers there right like psychological barriers just to like you know it's still difficult like the mainstream still doesn't want to equate uh, disease states with diet you know or lifestyle factors it's kind of like well we'll give it that on um, you know diabetes because you know type two diabetes fine yeah that probably does have something to do with diet. And, you know, there's certain things in the diet that might be carcinogenic, but then they'll like, they'll cut it off, right? So if you're, if you, if you have a diff, uh, like a, an odd diagnosis or a one that's kind of, uh, you know, a little bit more ambiguous, then it's, it's kind of like there's, there's a barrier there to actually being like, well, maybe it has something to do with what I'm eating. Like most people just do not believe that. And they look for pharmaceutical interventions, um, rather than actually assessing diet and lifestyle and, and, and kind of, trying to figure things out. And I think that the media actually getting back to the media actually plays a, a pivotal role in that because they yeah. don't they don't tend to accept that sort of thing. It's still right. fringe. Yeah. So are they all trying to kill us or what's the motivation? <laughs> <laughs> are they really just dummies? And they can't be faulted for their dumbness. Well, I don't like know about that. <laughs> I don't, I don't think they're dumb. I don't no. think these people are dumb. Uh, I mean, some of them maybe, but I I don't buy the fact. I think they're spineless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and they yeah. don't actually care. I think they're criminals. A lot of them, um, mm. you know, in the in the higher tiers of like you know nutritional science and public policy i think they are criminal and that they are fraudulent and that they take money well i mean that's that's not my thoughts that's factual you know and that they're funded Mm. by these you know by various interests and things but you know um i'm sure some of them are stupid well i think yeah it's you know i guess you kind of have to like divide it because i think that you're probably right the people who are putting the science out there are definitely more accountable. Um, but as far as the media goes, I think that stupid actually explains a lot. That, yeah. that they're just like, you know, ignorant. Um, and, you know, they're reading the same headlines that everybody else is. And it's, it's not, it's rare that you actually find a journalist who is educated on what, like particularly in health and wellness, but I think it could probably be argued in other arenas as well, like politics. But I think that, that a lot of the times... A person is reporting on a study that they've just read the uh, the press release on, and that's it. And there is no critical thought. There's no looking and digging and seeing. Well, what's this study really all about? You know, how can I kind of look at that and maybe um, get a more critical perspective on what they're actually saying? There's none of that. It's and just who like, it? mm-hmm. yeah, who fund? Well, yeah, I mean, at the very least, looking at who funded it and what kind of conflicts of interest are there, and who, what you know, what interests are actually driving what's being reported on. There's none of that. 
It's just like, what, what's a really snappy headline that I can do? You know, how can I get more clicks? Like that, those are the things that they're concerned with. So I think that, yeah, it, it's partly stupidity and willing ignorance to a certain uh, degree as well. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think when, when you look at the media and who's actually like um, reporting on this kind of stuff, that's what, um, that's what's driving these things. I think there is one standout. It wasn't Gary Taubes, a health journalist. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. not a medical professional. He actually did dig into studies and he wrote a couple of really mm-hmm. good books, like Good Calories, Bad Calories, and Why Do We Get Fat? And mm-hmm. for a journalist, he does a really good job of really digging into the studies. But I think yeah. that one thing that we have to take into account, like with these larger newspaper publications, is that they have advertising dollars from big pharma companies. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that they're going to be running a bunch of stories about natural alternatives or the the goodness of saturated fat and coconut oil and turmeric and all that because they're going to lose their funding. Yeah, that's part of it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I I was, you know, on a bit of a rant there, but there are certainly good journalists out there. I mean, uh, Nina Takeholtz is another one. Who um who who wrote that book uh, the big fat surprise, um which was basically a, a great book just vindicating kind of saturated fat and really kind of digging into the history of it and how it got demonized and all that sort of stuff. So there certainly are good journalists out there, um but I think your average person who doesn't get outside of an office and is just reading press releases and isn't digging into things and stuff, which is the vast majority, is you know they're they're stupid. Yeah, maybe they just got picked to be the health health writer because they like to go to the gym and do yoga or something. Exactly. <laughs> They're interested in health. And Let's drinking turmeric lattes on the job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, we uh <clears throat> coming up on our time. Do you guys want to go to the pet health segment and then we'll we'll wrap up when we come back and talk about what you can do. Okay. Sounds good. This pet health segment is going to be about rabies. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today's topic is going to be the rabies virus. It is one of the most serious viruses that can affect both animals and humans. Listen up to Dr. Karen Becker discussing the virus and all the possible symptoms and also the required vaccinations, and how you can protect your pet from their potentially harmful effects. Have a nice day, and goodbye. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker. The rabies virus, which is also called acute viral encephalomyelitis, is an extremely serious, usually fatal, inflammatory infection that affects the brain and central nervous system, or CNS. The virus is a single-strand RNA virus of the genus Lysivirus in the family Rabdoviridae. It's carried in the blood and saliva of infected animals. In dogs and cats in the U.S., the rabies virus is most often transmitted when an infected fox, raccoon, skunk, coyote, or bat bites a pet. Infectious virus particles are present in the saliva of these animals to more efficiently transmit the disease. It's also extremely rare, but transmission has also been documented to occur through the exposure to the escaping gases of an infected decomposing animal. Very rare, but could happen. This usually, this transmission usually happens um, in caves where there's large populations of infected bats. So it's something you need to think about if you are a caving person or if you have a hunting dog or you like to go exploring with your dog. 
Rabies is a zoonotic disease, meaning it can also be transmitted to humans by infected animals. Once the rabies virus enters a pet's body, it multiplies in muscle cells and then spreads to nearby peripheral sensory and motor nerves, which eventually moves it to the brain and central nervous system, which is when an animal becomes symptomatic or begins exhibiting symptoms. During the incubation period, before the virus enters the CNS, the animal does not exhibit any symptoms and doesn't transmit the disease at that point. The average time between exposure to brain involvement is three to eight weeks in dogs and two to six weeks in cats. However, incubation periods as long as six months have been reported in dogs. Once the virus reaches the brain, the animal will experience one, two, or three phases of a rabies infection. Also at this point, the virus moves to the salivary glands where uh, it begins, of course, the shedding process where transmission will occur. The first rabies phase is the prodromal phase, which is usually lasts between one and two days in cats and two to three days in dogs. Symptoms during this phase can be a fever, anxiety, nervousness, a desire for solitude, they just want to be left alone, and normally friendly dogs or cats may show shyness, irritability, or snappishness. They just are reactive. Normally, aggressive animals, interestingly, can turn docile and affectionate at this point, and we see that a lot with wild animals that are affected with the rabies virus. Most pets also persistently lick at the site of where they were bitten, so that could be a clue. The second phase of rabies is either what's called the furious phage or the paralytic phase, which is also the, it's also called the dumb phase. In the furious phase, which can last from one to seven days, symptoms include restlessness, irritability, hypersensitivities to noise and visual stimuli, roaming and attacking behaviors. Eventually these pets become disoriented, they begin having seizures, and then they eventually die. The paralytic phase can follow either the prodromal phase or the furious phase and is usually seen two to four days after the first signs of the disease are noticed. Nerves in the head and throat will be affected in this phase, which leads to excessive drooling because the pet can no longer swallow efficiently. There can also be significant labored breathing, a dropped jaw, and choking sounds as the diaphragm muscles of the, and muscles of the face become paralyzed. The animal will grow progressively weaker and eventually go into respiratory failure and die. Rabies is a fast-moving virus that must be treated as soon as symptoms appear if the pet has any chance for survival. If your dog or cat has been in a fight with another animal and has been bitten or scratched by another animal, or if you suspect that he may have come in contact with a rabid animal, you should take him to your veterinarian or emergency clinic immediately. Diagnosis of rabies in a living dog or cat is done through history taking and symptom observation. Pets suspected of having rabies are quarantined in a locked kennel at a veterinary clinic for 10 days and carefully monitored. If an animal is showing progressive symptoms of the disease while quarantined, then the veterinarian will take fluid samples for evaluation. And if they are positive for rabies, your dog or cat, sadly, by law, must be euthanized. Animals who die of a suspected rabies infection are diagnosed post-mortem or after death with a direct fluorescence antibody test performed at a state-approved laboratory. All confirmed cases of rabies must be reported to the state health department, and unfortunately, at this point, there's no amazing treatment or cure for rabies, and death actually typically occurs in unprotected animals within 7 to 10 days after the onset of symptoms. Since rabies is a really devastating disease, a fatal disease, 
it's really important to protect your dog or cat through vaccination as appropriate and as required by law, as well as to avoid situations in which your dog or cat could be exposed to a rabid animal. Rabies vaccines are the only vaccines mandated by law in all 50 states. These vaccines, like all vaccines, have the potential for adverse side effects or reactions, and those reactions can, may, can range from very, very mild to really profound reactions and or anaphylaxis and death. Fortunately, all 50 states now have a three-year revaccination protocol after the second vaccine is given. However, a few county and city laws may differ, so it's important that you check with your local veterinarian or animal control for more information about your state's and county-specific rabies vaccine requirements. Some states allow for medical exemptions from rabies vaccines for pets who have illnesses, chronic diseases, or have had adverse reactions in the past. And I've done that very, very regularly. So if I know an animal's having a toxic reaction, uh, those animals could be titered for rabies and in many instances are not required to have additional continued vaccination. I strongly recommend waiting until a pet is as old as allowable by law before giving its first rabies vaccination. In some states, this is six months. In others, it's earlier. A booster shot is usually required within 12 months. And after that second shot, I strongly recommend that you insist on the three-year rabies vaccine because it's identical to the one-year rabies vaccine. So in essence, you're able to provide the protection that's required by law, but at a much less frequent interval, which just across the board means less vaccine, which across the board means healthier pets. In addition, rabies vaccine should never be given in combination with other vaccines or at the same time as another vaccines. Rabies vaccine should be given alone, separate from all other vaccinations by at least two weeks. And because rabies is the only vaccine really required by law, I, I really recommend that that's the only vaccine that, le that you give your pets. You can titer for all of the other diseases. I also recommend uh, the homeopathic detox for rabies vaccine called Listen especially if your pet has had an adverse reaction. Always closely monitor the injection site after each rabies vaccine, and if you notice inflammation or any other abnormality in the, or change in the appearance of the skin, a lump, irritation, or heat, contact your veterinarian immediately. It's our goal within the integrative community that the Rabies Challenge Fund, which was initially set up by immunologist Dr. Ron Schultz and veterinarian Gene Dodds, proves that the rabies vaccine provides duration of immunity for a much longer period of time than just three years. And ultimately what that would mean is that animals have far fewer vaccines over a lifetime. This would allow for animals to be immunologically protected without the risk of cumulative vaccine damage over the course of their lifetime. All right, vaccinated goats. Unvaccinated goats? They're happy anyway. <laughs> Thank you, Zoe. That was great. Um, so, yeah, uh, I guess uh, for our show, just to wrap up, um, you know, look stuff up. <laughs> do, <laughs> Google do, it. Uh, do research. Yeah, Google it. Google that shit, as a friend of mine likes to say. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's a salient point, really, like, you know, take uh, ownership of your own health. I know that sounds like a like a super motivational speaker thing to say, but it it's true. <laughs> you got <clears throat> to have some agency and make your own choices about things and, and realize that you have the ability to to make reasonable choices, you know, yeah. not that you just have everything. to follow people. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's a big one. It's 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 like just recognize that the stuff that you're seeing in the mainstream media is coming from a very particular point of view and maybe not a very trustworthy one at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a a guy that has a website and he says oh, yeah? that yeah. He does the opposite <laughs> of what mainstream <laughs> news tells him to do when it comes to health. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's good because, yeah, I think in a lot of cases that you would actually end up on top doing that. It's like that big, I'm thinking about that big list that came out a little while ago that, um, I think the site's called like US News or something like that. And every year they get <clears throat> quote unquote experts together to evaluate all the diets out there and they, they make a list of like the best ones and it goes all through for like 40 different diets down to the worst one. And consistently, the ketogenic diet is like last or second last or something like that. So, yeah, if if uh, if the guy was kind of like, which diet should I do? Well, the mainstream media is all saying do the Mediterranean diet. So I'm going to go with their last choice, which was the ketogenic diet. I mean, <laughs> dude would be way ahead of the game. That's really funny. I like that yeah. approach. <laughs> yeah. Well, this week, I think we all had an interesting time just looking at the mainstream media, because I know for me, mm-hmm. that's not my go-to for information, but just no. just going to the health section of mainstream media, it's actually really entertaining. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's comic and tragic at the same time. <laughs> um, I do, uh, before we wrap it up, I actually have a recipe for today oh. that we haven't done in a while. Oh, yeah. it's the one you posted. I saw it. Well, it's Is actually it? a different one. <clears throat> oh, okay. Um, yeah, but we can do that one another time. This is for uh, pemmican. Ah. So I was really curious about pemmican and what it was. And uh, essentially, way back in the day, uh, it was uh, dehydrated meat, nuts, and fruit mixed with a fat. So <clears throat> you can imagine... Nomadic hunters uh, pick up some nuts and fruit and have that on hand. You kill some, you know, like a buffalo or an elk, dehydrate the meat, you grind it up over time, <clears throat> and then mix that together with the fat, and you make these highly concentrated bars that you can carry around. And that was an energy old method bars. for having, yeah, essentially like paleo energy bars, but truly paleo, uh, meaning, truly you know, that's been around for a long time. Uh, so... I wanted to try it. Uh, it's a little bit of an altered recipe, but uh, two pounds of uh, ground beef. So, listeners, if you want to write this down, if you got your pen handy, um, try to find good beef. Uh, if you can, find lean beef, only because it makes it easier for this process to do the dehydration. Um, <clears throat> before you do the dehydration, this is what I did just for flavor. So, uh, to the beef, um, a half a teaspoon of vanilla. Uh, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar and a quarter cup of coffee. Mm. Um, it just liquid adds like kind of a or yeah, liquid coffee. Um, liquid just to add like some of that flavor in there. You can leave it out if you want. Um, obviously, especially if you're allergic to coffee. But uh, then what we have um, so for the nut base is a quarter pound of uh, raw almonds, uh, organic uh, raw almonds. Uh, one-eighth pound of dry blueberries. Um, so try to find those without sugar. A lot of times if you get dried berries, they're going to have sugar added. So, I mean, if you can't find them, I recommend just getting blueberries and then dehydrating them yourself. Uh, but that's an eighth a pound of dry blueberries. 
um, <clears throat> and then take the raw almonds and then the, the blueberries and put them in the blender. And basically, like, you powder the almonds, but the blueberries will get kind of chunked up and mixed with that powder. Um, so you end up with that. So you have your ground beef. Um, then you have your almond and blueberry mixture. Uh, then three and a half ounces of cocoa butter. This is very important because butter will not work the same. Lard may work similarly, but I haven't tried it. But I did cocoa butter because it's uh, more stable at room temp. Um, uh, let's see. And then a cup of hemp protein. So I was trying to find a protein that would be good. A lot of the protein powders you find are whey-based or dairy-based. So use hemp protein powder for this. Uh, a teaspoon of stevia. <clears throat> a teaspoon of cinnamon. Uh, one-eighth teaspoon of clove, uh, one tablespoon of cocoa powder, one tablespoon of cacao powder. Now, that was just my own thing. You don't have to do, just do two tablespoons of cocoa powder if you don't have cacao powder. It's basically powdered cacao nibs. It's essentially the same thing. Uh, and then a quarter cup of cacao nibs because those have like a nice crunch to them and they're really nutritious. Um, half a teaspoon of gelatin powder. And one-eighth teaspoon cream of tartar, and that's for, like, an emulsifier to kind of hold everything together. So what you do then is you dehydrate the meat uh, in a um, in a dehydrator, so spread it out. I basically used a jerky gun and made a bunch of jerky and then cut it up and then run it through the blender so that you turn it into kind of a powder. Then you mix that with your almonds, uh, hemp protein powder, uh, blueberries, everything else. Basically, what you end up with is this big ball of like pasty mash, essentially. That's everything mixed together, including the cocoa butter. Now, the cocoa butter you have to melt down in like a double boiler so it turns liquid. Then you mix that in. Then you compress it all into a pan or two pans, however much you get, um, and then just put it in the fridge. And when it cools, then you break it off and you have, you know, really good dense bars that you can carry around. Um, you can control, you know, what's in them. You can leave the blueberries out if you're being 100% about any kind of sugar at all. Um, you know, you can alter things. You could add some spice if you wanted to add a little bit of cayenne or something like that if you're not allergic to nightshades. So I think it's a pretty versatile recipe. And it tasted pretty, pretty hippie-ish. You know, it was like hippie cookies, but it was also good. It, I didn't, it didn't turn me off. Like, I actually finished the batch and was like, oh, this is good. Um, sometimes I'll make, you know try to make like healthy baked goods or bars of some type like that. And they just end up tasting like shit. <laughs> <laughs> so it just turned out good. So I stand by this recipe. My Sounds only good. experience with pemmican was, uh, was like a more savory pemmican. Like it didn't have anything yeah. sweet in it. And it uh -huh. was like, it was awful. It was just kind of like, yeah. Oh my God, this is disgusting. <laughs> but this one is intriguing. I think particularly because it's got the cocoa butter and the vanilla in there. So I can see that being tasty. Yeah, and the co the cocoa butter really helped uh, hold everything together really well, and it doesn't make it hard. I mean, it's essentially like a mm -hmm. granola bar that you get from the store. It's kind of like, you know, it pulls apart, uh, but it'll stay together if you wrap it up in, uh, you know, parchment paper or whatever. You can carry them around put them in a baggie. Um, mm -hmm. But they have come in really handy. And you don't need much. I mean, like a little two-by-two-inch square, uh, I found, like I'd eat one of those in the morning and then be completely fine until dinner time around 7. <laughs> so... Yeah. Cool. Anyway, that's pemmican. So I'm starting to play around in the kitchen a little more than I have in the past. So maybe we'll have some more recipes as we go forward. Very cool. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, what's what's a jerky gun? Oh, it's like a it's a tube with like a plunger in it with a trigger, and it goes tick 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 like a ratchet, you know. 
and it pushes yeah. the plunger up. And then at the end, you have a screw on cap with different kind of like uh, holes. Like there's a circular one or like a wide flat one. And then you use the trigger to squeeze the meat out into jerky strips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what I used to make jerky with. Um, Very cool. But they're pretty handy. You can get them at whatever store. You know, most stores will carry something like that. And if not, just look up jerky gun on, on Amazon. You can find they're pretty cheap. Yeah. Cool. The dehydrator is another thing. I mean, if you want to get a good dehydrator, they're not that cheap. Um, I just have a, a, a Ronco, like basic level dehydrator that works fine. Um, <laughs> if you can, I think try to get one with a fan in it. There are some that just sit there and heat up slightly on the inside. And there's other ones that have a fan in them, but those work a lot better. Mm. So, yeah. Cool. So yeah, we'll do more. Uh, next week we'll do uh, sauerkraut chips. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dehydrator. Yeah. Nice. That was a fun one. So, uh, that's our show for today. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Um, and to our chat participants for being in the chat. Uh, hope everybody has a great weekend and we will be back next week. Okay. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.